Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. This week, we bring you two more selected essays by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Two brief announcements before we begin. First, I will be appearing at Malcon again this year. I will be running a panel on the voice actors of Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. If you would like to see me, plus a couple of the voice actors of major roles, come on down to Malcon on Sunday, August 10th. Link and details are at hpmorpodcast.com. Secondly, Eliezer's employer, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, is now in their 2014 Summer Matching Challenge. Between now and August 15th, every dollar donated, up to 200000 will be matched. To double your impact for a limited time, go to intelligence.org slash donate. Again, links are at the website. First Essay Religions Claim to Be Non-Disprovable Written in 2007 The earliest account I know of a scientific experiment is, ironically, the story of Elijah and the priests of Baal. The people of Israel are wavering between Jehovah and Baal, so Elijah announces that he will conduct an experiment to settle it. Quite a novel concept in those days. The priests of Baal will place their bull on an altar, and Elijah will place Jehovah's bull on an altar, but neither will be allowed to start the fire. Whichever god is real will call down fire on his sacrifice. The priests of Baal serve as a control group for Elijah. The same wooden fuel, the same bull, and the same priests making invocations, but to a false god. Then Elijah pours water on his altar, ruining the experimental symmetry, but this was back in the early days, to signify deliberate acceptance of the burden of proof, like needing a 0.05 significance level. The fire comes down on Elijah's altar, which is the experimental observation. The watching people of Israel shout, The Lord is God! Peer review. And then the people haul the 450 priests of Baal down to the river Kishon and slit their throats. This is stern, but necessary. You must firmly discard the falsified hypothesis and do so swiftly before it can generate excuses to protect itself. If the priests of Baal are allowed to survive, they will start babbling about how religion is a separate magisterium which can be neither proven nor disproven. Back in the old days, people actually believed their religions instead of just believing in them. The biblical archaeologists who went in search of Noah's Ark did not think they were wasting their time. They anticipated they might become famous. Only after failing to find confirming evidence, and finding disconfirming evidence in its place, did religionists execute what William Bartley called the retreat to commitment. I believe because I believe. Back in the old days, there was no concept of religion being a separate magisterium. The Old Testament is a stream-of-consciousness culture dump. History, law, moral parables, and yes, models of how the universe works. In not one single passage of the Old Testament will you find anyone talking about the transcendent wonder of the complexity of the universe but you will find plenty of scientific claims, like the universe being created in six days, which is a metaphor for the Big Bang, or rabbits chewing their cud, which is a metaphor for... 
Back in the old days, saying the local religion could not be proven would have gotten you burned at the stake. One of the core beliefs of Orthodox Judaism is that God appeared at Mount Sinai and said in a thundering voice, Yeah, it's all true. From a Bayesian perspective, that's some darned unambiguous evidence of a superhumanly powerful entity. Albeit, it doesn't prove that the entity is God per se, or that the entity is benevolent. It could be alien teenagers. The vast majority of religions in human history, excepting only those invented extremely recently, tell stories of events that would constitute completely unmistakable evidence if they'd actually happened. The orthogonality of religion and factual questions is a recent and strictly Western concept. The people who wrote the original scriptures didn't even know the difference. The Roman Empire inherited philosophy from the ancient Greeks, imposed law and order within its provinces, kept bureaucratic records, and enforced religious tolerance. The New Testament, created during the time of the Roman Empire, bears some traces of modernity as a result. You couldn't invent a story about God completely obliterating the city of Rome, a la Sodom and Gomorrah, because the Roman historians would call you on it, and you couldn't just stone them. In contrast, the people who invented the Old Testament stories could make up pretty much anything they liked. Early Egyptologists were genuinely shocked to find no trace whatsoever of Hebrew tribes having ever been in Egypt. They weren't expecting to find a record of the ten plagues, but they expected to find something. As it turned out, they did find something. They found out that, during the supposed time of the Exodus, Egypt ruled much of Canaan. That's one huge historical error, but if there are no libraries, no one can call you on it. The Roman Empire did have libraries. Thus, the New Testament doesn't claim big, showy, large-scale geopolitical miracles as the Old Testament routinely did. Instead, the New Testament claims smaller miracles, which nonetheless fit into the same framework of evidence. A boy falls down and froths at the mouth. The cause is an unclean spirit. An unclean spirit could reasonably be expected to flee from a true prophet, but not to flee from a charlatan. Jesus casts out the unclean spirit. Therefore, Jesus is a true prophet and not a charlatan. This is perfectly ordinary Bayesian reasoning if you grant the basic premise that epilepsy is caused by demons and that the end of an epileptic fit proves the demon fled. Not only did religion used to make claims about factual and scientific matters, religion used to make claims about everything. Religion laid down a code of law before legislative bodies. Religion laid down history before historians and archaeologists. Religion laid down the sexual morals before women's lib. Religion described the forms of government before constitutions. And religion answered scientific questions, from biological taxonomy to the formation of stars. The Old Testament doesn't talk about a sense of wonder at the complexity of the universe. It was busy laying down the death penalty for women who wore men's clothing, which was solid and satisfying religious content of that era. The modern concept of religion as purely ethical derives from every other area having been taken over by better institutions. Ethics is what's left.
or rather, people think ethics is what's left. Take a culture dump from 2,500 years ago. Over time, humanity will progress immensely, and pieces of the ancient culture dump will become ever more glaringly obsolete. Ethics has not been immune to human progress. For example, we now frown upon such Bible-approved practices as keeping slaves. Why do people think that ethics is still fair game? Intrinsically, there's nothing small about the ethical problem with slaughtering thousands of innocent first-born male children to convince an unelected pharaoh to release slaves who logically could have been teleported out of the country. It should be more glaring than the comparatively trivial scientific error of saying that grasshoppers have four legs. And yet, if you say the earth is flat, people will look at you like you're crazy. But if you say the Bible is your source of ethics, women will not slap you. Most people's concept of rationality is determined by what they think they can get away with. They think they can get away with endorsing Bible ethics. And so, it only requires a manageable effort of self-deception for them to overlook the Bible's moral problems. Everyone has agreed not to notice the elephant in the living room, and this state of affairs can sustain itself for a time. Maybe someday, humanity will advance further, and anyone who endorses the Bible as a source of ethics will be treated the same way as Trent Lott endorsing Strom Thurmond's presidential campaign. And then it will be said that religion's true core has always been genealogy, or something. The idea that religion is a separate magisterium which cannot be proven or disproven is a big lie. A lie which is repeated over and over again so that people will say it without thinking, yet which is, on critical examination, simply false. It is a wild distortion of how religion happened historically, of how all scriptures present their beliefs, of what children are told to persuade them and of what the majority of religious people on earth still believe. You have to admire its sheer brazenness, on a par with Oceania has always been at war with East Asia. The prosecutor whips out the bloody axe, and the defendant, momentarily shocked, thinks quickly and says, But you can't disprove my innocence by mere evidence! It's a separate magisterium! And if that doesn't work, grab a piece of paper and scribble yourself a get-out-of-jail-free card. Second Essay An Alien God by Eliezer Yudkowsky, 2007 A curious aspect of the theory of evolution, said Jacques Monod, is that everyone thinks he understands it. A human being, looking at the natural world, sees a thousand times purpose. A rabbit's legs, built and articulated for running. A fox's jaws, built and articulated for tearing. But what you see is not exactly what is there. In the days before Darwin, the cause of all this apparent purposefulness was a very great puzzle unto science. The goddess said, God did it! because you got 50 bonus points each time you used the word God in a sentence. Yet perhaps I'm being unfair. In the days before Darwin, it seemed like a much more reasonable hypothesis. 
Find a watch in the desert, said William Paley, and you can infer the existence of a watchmaker. But when you look at all the apparent purposefulness in nature, rather than picking and choosing your examples, you start to notice things that don't fit the Judeo-Christian concept of one benevolent God. Foxes seem well designed to catch rabbits. Rabbits seem well designed to evade foxes. Was the creator having trouble making up its mind? When I design a toaster oven, I don't design one part that tries to get electricity to the coils and a second part that tries to prevent electricity from getting to the coils. It would be a waste of effort. Who designed the ecosystem with its predators and prey, viruses and bacteria? Even the cactus plant, which you might think was well designed to provide water fruit to desert animals, is covered in inconvenient spines. The ecosystem would make much more sense if it wasn't designed by a unitary who, but rather created by a horde of deities, say from the Hindu or Shinto religions. This handily explains both the ubiquitous purposefulness and the ubiquitous conflicts. More than one deity acted, often at cross-purposes. The fox and rabbit were both designed, but by distinct competing deities. I wonder if anyone ever remarked on the seemingly excellent evidence thus provided for Hinduism over Christianity. Probably not. Similarly, the Judeo-Christian God is alleged to be benevolent. Well, sort of. And yet, much of nature's purposefulness seems downright cruel. Darwin suspected a non-standard creator for studying ichneumon wasps, whose paralyzing stings preserve its prey to be eaten alive by its larva. I cannot persuade myself, wrote Darwin, that a beneficent and omnipotent god would have designedly created the ichneumonidae with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars, or that a cat should play with mice. I wonder if any earlier thinker remarked on the excellent evidence thus provided for Manichaean religions over monotheistic ones. By now we all know the punchline. You just say, evolution. I worry that's how some people are absorbing the scientific explanation, as a magical purposefulness factory in nature. I've previously discussed the case of Storm from the movie X-Men, who, in one mutation, gets the ability to throw lightning bolts. Why? Well, there's this thing called evolution that somehow pumps a lot of purposefulness into nature, and the changes happen through mutations. So, if Storm gets a really large mutation, she can be redesigned to throw lightning bolts. Radioactivity is a popular super-origin. Radiation causes mutations, so more powerful radiation causes more powerful mutations. That's logic. But evolution doesn't allow just any kind of purposefulness to leak into nature. That's what makes evolution a success as an empirical hypothesis. If evolutionary biology could explain a toaster oven, not just a tree, it would be worthless. There's a lot more to evolutionary theory than pointing at nature and saying, Now purpose is allowed! Or, Evolution did it! The strength of a theory is not what it allows, but what it prohibits. If you can invent an equally persuasive explanation for any outcome, you have zero knowledge. 
Many non-biologists, observe George Williams, think that it is for their benefit that rattles grow on rattlesnakes' tails. This kind of purposefulness is not allowed. Evolution doesn't work by letting flashes of purposefulness creep in at random, reshaping one species for the benefit of a random recipient. Evolution is powered by a systemic correlation between the different ways that different genes construct organisms and how many copies of those genes make it into the next generation. For rattles to grow on rattlesnake tails, rattle-growing genes must become more and more frequent in each successive generation. Actually, genes for incrementally more complex rattles, but if I start describing all the Phillips and caveats to evolutionary biology, we really will be here all day. There isn't an evolution fairy that looks over the current state of nature, decides what would be a good idea, and chooses to increase the frequency of rattle-constructing genes. I suspect this is where a lot of people get stuck in evolutionary biology. They understand that helpful genes become more common. But helpful lets any sort of purpose leak in. They don't think there's an evolution fairy, yet they ask which genes will be helpful, as if a rattlesnake gene could help non-rattlesnakes. The key realization is that there is no evolution fairy. There's no outside force deciding which genes ought to be promoted. Whatever happens, happens because of the genes themselves. Genes for constructing incrementally better rattles must have somehow ended up more frequent in the rattlesnake gene pool because of the rattle. In this case, it's probably because rattlesnakes with better rattles survive more often, rather than mating more successfully or having brothers that reproduce more successfully, etc. Maybe predators are wary of rattles and don't step on the snake. Or maybe the rattle diverts attention from the snake's head. As George Williams suggests, The outcome of a fight between a dog and a viper would depend very much on whether the dog initially sees the reptile by the head or by the tail. But that's just the snake's rattle. There are much more complicated ways that a gene can cause copies of itself to become more frequent in the next generation. Your brother or sister shares half your genes. A gene that sacrifices one unit of resources to bestow three units of resource on a brother may promote some copies of itself by sacrificing one of its constructed organisms. If you really want to know all the details and caveats, buy a book on evolutionary biology. There is no royal road. The main point is that the gene's effect must cause copies of that gene to become more frequent in the next generation. There's no evolution fairy that reaches in from the outside. There's nothing which decides that some genes are helpful and should, therefore, increase in frequency. It's just cause and effect, starting from the genes themselves. This explains the strange conflicting purposefulness of nature and its frequent cruelty. It explains even better than a horde of Shinto deities. Why is so much of nature at war with other parts of nature? Because there isn't one evolution directing the whole process. There's as many different evolutions as reproducing populations. Rabbit genes are becoming more or less frequent in rabbit populations. Fox genes are becoming more or less frequent in fox populations. 
Fox genes which construct foxes that catch rabbits insert more copies of themselves in the next generation. Rabbit genes which construct rabbits that evade foxes are naturally more common in the next generation of rabbits. Hence the phrase natural selection. Why is nature cruel? You, a human, can look at an ichneumon wasp and decide that it's cruel to eat your prey alive. You can decide that if you're going to eat your prey alive, you can at least have the decency to stop it from hurting. It would scarcely cost the wasp anything to anesthetize its prey as well as paralyze it. Or what about old elephants who die of starvation when their last set of teeth fall out? These elephants aren't going to reproduce anyway. What would it cost evolution, the evolution of elephants, rather, to ensure that the elephant dies right away, instead of slowly and in agony? What would it cost evolution to anesthetize the elephant or give it pleasant dreams before it dies? Nothing. That elephant won't reproduce more or less either way. If you were talking to a fellow human trying to resolve a conflict of interest, you would be in a good negotiating position, would have an easy job of persuasion. It would cost so little to anesthetize the prey, to let the elephant die without agony. Oh, please, won't you do it? Kindly? Um... There's no one to argue with. Human beings fake their justifications, figure out what they want using one method, then justify it using another. There's no evolution of elephant's fairy that's trying to A. Figure out what's best for elephants, and then B. Figure out how to justify it to the evolutionary overseer, who, C, doesn't want to see reproductive fitness decreased, but is, D, willing to go along with the painless death idea so long as it doesn't actually harm any genes. There's no advocate for elephants anywhere in the system. Humans, who are often deeply concerned for the well-being of animals, can be very persuasive in arguing how various kindnesses wouldn't harm reproductive fitness at all. Sadly, the evolution of elephants doesn't use a similar algorithm. It doesn't select nice genes that can plausibly be argued to help reproductive fitness. Simply, genes that replicate more often become more frequent in the next generation, like water flowing downhill and equally benevolent. A human, looking over nature, starts thinking of all the ways we would design organisms. And then, we tend to start rationalizing reasons why our design improvements would increase reproductive fitness. A political instinct, trying to sell your own preferred option as matching the boss's favorite justification. And so, amateur evolutionary biologists end up making all sorts of wonderful and completely mistaken predictions. Because the amateur biologists are drawing their bottom line, and more importantly, locating their prediction in hypothesis space, using a different algorithm than evolutions use to draw their bottom lines. A human engineer would have designed human taste buds to measure how much of each nutrient we had, and how much we needed. When fat was scarce, almonds or cheeseburgers would taste delicious. If you started to become obese, or if vitamins were lacking, lettuce would taste delicious. But there is no evolution of humans' fairy, which intelligently planned ahead and designed a general system for every contingency. 
It was a reliable invariant of humans' ancestral environment that calories were scarce. So genes whose organisms loved calories became more frequent. Like water flowing downhill. We are simply the embodied history of which organisms did in fact survive and reproduce, not which organisms ought prudentially to have survived and reproduced. The human retina is designed backward. The light-sensitive cells are at the back, and the nerves emerge from the front and go back through the retina into the brain, hence the blind spot. To a human engineer, this looks simply stupid, and other organisms have independently evolved retinas the right way around. Why not redesign the retina? The problem is that no single mutation will reroute the whole retina simultaneously. A human engineer can redesign multiple parts simultaneously or plan ahead for future changes. But if a single mutation breaks some vital part of the organism, it doesn't matter what wonderful things a fairy could build on top of it. The organism dies and the genes decrease in frequency. If you turn around the retina cells without also reprogramming the nerves and optical cable, the system as a whole won't work. It doesn't matter that, to a fairy or a human engineer, this is one step forward in redesigning the retina. The organism is blind. Evolution has no foresight. It is simply the frozen history of which organisms did in fact reproduce. Evolution is as blind as a halfway redesigned retina. Find a watch in a desert, said William Paley, and you can infer the watchmaker. There were once those who denied this, who thought that life just happened without need of an optimization process, mice being spontaneously generated from straw and dirty shirts. If we ask who was more correct, the theologians who argued for a creator god or the intellectually unfulfilled atheists who argued that mice spontaneously generated, then the theologians must be declared the victors. Evolution is not God, but it is closer to God than it is to pure random entropy. Mutation is random, but selection is non-random. That doesn't mean an intelligent fairy is reaching in and selecting. It means there's a non-zero statistical correlation between the gene and how often the organism reproduces. Over a few million years, that non-zero statistical correlation adds up to something very powerful. It's not a god, but it's more closely akin to a god than it is to snow on a television screen. In a lot of ways, evolution is like unto theology. Gods are ontologically distinct from creatures, said Damien Broderick, or they're not worth the paper they're written on. And indeed, the shaper of life is not itself a creature. Evolution is bodiless, like the Judeo-Christian deity, omnipresent in nature, imminent in the fall of every leaf, vast as a planet's surface, billions of years old, itself unmade, arising naturally from the structure of physics. Doesn't that all sound like something that might have been said about God? And yet, the Maker has no mind, as well as no body. In some ways, its handiwork is incredibly poor design by human standards.
it is internally divided. Most of all, it isn't nice. In a way, Darwin discovered God, a God that failed to match the preconceptions of theology and so passed unheralded. If Darwin had discovered that life was created by an intelligent agent, a bodiless mind that loves us and will smite us with lightning if we dare say otherwise, people would have said, My gosh! That's God! But instead, Darwin discovered a strange alien god. Not comfortably ineffable, but really genuinely different from us. Evolution is not a god, but if it were, it wouldn't be Jehovah. It would be H.P. Lovecraft's Azathoth, the blind idiot god burbling chaotically at the center of everything, surrounded by the thin, monotonous piping of flutes. Which you might have predicted if you had really looked at nature. So much for the claims some religionists make that they believe in a vague deity with a correspondingly high probability. Anyone who really believed in a vague deity would have recognized their strange, inhuman creator when Darwin said, Aha! So much for the claims some religionists make that they are waiting innocently curious for science to discover God. Science has already discovered the sort of godlike maker of humans, but it wasn't what the religionists wanted to hear. They were waiting for the discovery of their god, the highly specific god they want to be there. They shall wait forever, for the great discovery has already taken place, and the winner is Azathoth. Well, more power to us humans. I like having a creator I can outwit. Beats being a pet. I'm glad it was Azathoth and not Odin. Thank you for listening. As always, you can always read many more of Yudkowsky's writings at lesswrong.com. The music used is the intro and outro to Queensryche's Empire album. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the next chapter of Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. (laughs) ¶¶